Hobbs, what is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks, Adele Carr and Leah Reed look at issues that continue to arise in these times of pandemic, with three recent full federal court decisions on the question of contractor or employee. Ian Roberts and Lucy Saunders take a detailed look at sport, ethics and employment with Olympic rower and academic Vicky Roberts and consider how issues that arise in sport, including in particular bullying and harassment, and compare with the way they are handled in the context of employment. In the final segment, members of the Greenway Chambers rock band Brief Encounter talk about forming and playing and are on the lookout for readers who can play keyboards. My name is Frank Hicks and I'm joined by Adele Carr. Hello, Adele. Hi, Frank. And Leah Reid. Hi, Frank. And we're here just to uh, look at what's been happening over the last month or so since we did our last podcast. Adele, just uh, turning to you first, um, what's caught your eye? A few things in both the Federal Court, the Supreme Court in New South Wales and down in Victoria in respect to some applications for adjournments in relation to AVO and witnesses giving evidence by AVO. Certainly all of the cases have been turned on their merits, so there doesn't seem to be any sort of formula with respect to, to how these applications are made or what is considered, but a few things that have come out from it. One thing, some judges in the federal court, though not all of them, and, and they are supported by some uh, Victorian Supreme Court judges, They've said that there's no great diminution in the conduct of online hearings compared to if it's conducted in person. And and what has seems to be the comments and the observations is that because people are put up on screens, there seems to be a clear review of the witness. So these questions that were raised at the beginning of March and April when these applications were made with respect to demeanour and, and assessing credit seems to have fallen away so long as the technology is good. Uh, And that's one of the considerations that is given, particularly in New South Wales. In New South Wales, the uh, Supreme Court will look at the Evidence, Audio and Visual Links Act. There's a number of considerations that need to be given. Um, One of them is in relation to the public health posed by the pandemic, the efficient use of judicial resources, and also the a party having the ability to communicate privately also with their legal representatives as well. And this is all in the context of civil proceedings. That's uh, correct. There's been no assessments as far as I'm aware. Well, uh, there was a, an adjournment granted, as I'm as I recall some months ago, in a criminal case where there was a risk. And obviously the question of demeanour and the assessment of credit can often be of far greater significance in the criminal context mm. than it perhaps is in civil or commercial matters or the sort of cases that the federal court deals with. Yeah, indeed, it has arisen with respect to some fair work cases in the federal court with respect to, to demeanour or otherwise uh, fraud cases as well. But there certainly has been some diverging views. Another interesting comment which I um, saw Justice Robin and Justice Harem with respect to whether evidence being taken by witnesses who are located in mainland China and whether that can be permitted given their local laws. Uh, neither judge passed comment with respect to whether the taking of evidence by AVL in Australia would infringe on those local laws, but certainly it has been left open for a further discussion later on down the track. Yes, well, it's certainly very interesting, and I imagine that does, is not limited to 
taking evidence from those in mainland China, but it could be in any number of jurisdictions around the world. That's great, yes. Um, Leah, what's, what have you seen in the last month or so that's interested you? I think we can just note that there's another Black Lives Matter protest that's meant to be held in late July. ABC are reporting that New South Wales police are looking to challenge that in the Supreme Court. So as you pointed out on the podcast on the last occasion, how quickly that will get dealt with and potentially an appeal if there is any, we'll get to see the New South Wales Supreme Court at full speed potentially. (laughs) Yes, well, following on from what's caught my eye is that following on from our last podcast, there's been a series of full federal court decisions dealing with the question of whether or not someone in particular circumstances, a contractor or an employee. Um, there were three decisions handed down in quick succession. The first was a Dental Corporation and Moffat, which is 2020 FC AFC 118. Uh, that involved the position of someone who had sold their practice as a dentist and then went on to provide services and whether or not that individual was an employee and whether or not they were entitled to superannuation. The next decision of the full federal court was JAMSEC and ZG Operations, 2020 FCA FC 119. This concerned a question that's arisen on numerous occasions as to whether or not truck drivers were employees, where they were effectively supplying their own truck, which was nonetheless dressed out in the livery of their, uh, well, as it was found, employer, and whether or not they were actually performing the work as employees. And the last one was CFMMEU and personnel contracting, which involved the question of whether or not an unskilled labourer who was providing services on a building site was an employee or a contractor. And that drew some attention from the City Morning Herald because of comments made by the President and uh, other members of the bench that the circumstances were such that the person would have been found to be an employee, but for a considerable weight of authority that went the other way. So... Three cases dealing with what seems to be a frequent question as to what is the true status of an individual under the arrangements by which services or labour or other work is provided, and the debate goes on. So thank you very much, Adele. Thank you, Leah, for joining us in this uh, introductory segment, and please keep listening for a couple of very interesting deep dives that we've got in our podcast. Thanks, Frank. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I'm Ian Roberts from Greenway Chambers, and I'm joined here today by two guests, Dr. Vicky Roberts from Melbourne University and Lucy Saunders from Greenway Chambers. Now, I need to make one disclosure here. Vicky is, in fact, my cousin, but that's not the reason she's joined us today. Vicky has a research and a teaching position at the Melbourne University's Faculty of Business and Economics and has been looking at a number of ethical issues that arise in sport and in the administration and coaching of sport. Prior to her current position, Vicky had a pretty impressive sporting career. She represented Australia in rowing at two Olympic Games as a member of the Women's Eight. She has three world championships to her name in both the four and the eight, 2001 and 2002. And in addition to a range of other achievements, including a number of World Cup wins, uh, prior to her rowing career, she represented Australia in netball. Welcome, Vicky. Thanks, Ian. Lovely to be here. And as I said, I'm here also with Lucy Saunders, who's a colleague of mine from Greenway Chambers. Hi, Lucy. G'day, Anne. How are you? Very well, thank you. Can I start with some of the different standards that we seem to have in sport and outside of sport? And we're dealing mostly today with ethical issues that arise in the sporting 
context. Vicky, Australia's got a pretty healthy obsession with sport. And is it still the case that behaviour that probably wouldn't be tolerated in a non-sporting workplace is accepted as normal, if not encouraged, in a sporting context? Well, unfortunately, I think that is the case, although I think what we'll uncover today with our discussion with Lucy is that we do see various forms of of abuse, whether that be psychological, physical or sexual abuse, also happening in a non-sporting context. But yes, we do see these forms of non-accidental violence happening in sport and the prevalence data really shows that it's widespread and it's a protracted issue. So we've got about 75% of athletes experiencing psychological abuse. We've got about 11% experiencing physical abuse and about the same number sexual abuse. And the research that I conducted with two of my colleagues, Dr. Victor Sojo and Felix Grant down in the University of Melbourne, showed that there are a number of organisational factors that not only make it possible for the various forms of non-accidental violence to occur in sport, but also make it more likely to occur. And you mentioned that these forms of non-accidental violence becomes normal or tolerated. Yes, that's actually what we find, that these sort of four major interrelated beliefs that make non-accidental violence tolerated include the belief that instigators of non-accidental violence won't get punished, the belief that the targets of abuse should remain silent or that they won't be believed, and also that the experience of abuse is somewhat ambiguous. So people within the sporting environment have different understandings or conceptions about what behaviours actually constitute non-accidental violence, and so therefore it can actually become uh, normalised more easily. In terms of it being encouraged, what we've also found that there are a range of motivating factors, if you like. So one of the most powerful, I guess, is this belief that abuse can actually be instrumental. So it can actually be used to drive better performance. And so that in particular, along with this sort of structural winner-take-all environment, whereby those that are number one are going to reap a disproportionate amount of rewards and some pretty sort of exciting and very much valued rewards in society. So that being perhaps fame or a sense of national pride, as well as obviously financial rewards. So I guess it's sort of a bit of a, a tinderbox if you like, where all these factors come together, making it not only possible, but also more likely. Um, Well, those figures are pretty sobering. Mm. Um, Lucy, do you think the reasons for the sorts of abuse that Vicky's talked about in the sporting context would spill over into the non-sporting workplace? Yes, I think there's a lot of similarity, how those factors arise and how it materialises into unacceptable conduct. Obviously, it looks different in a more conventional workplace, but Some of the behaviours and some of the drivers are very, very similar. Three are, I think, obvious. The first that Vicky mentioned was the power imbalance, perhaps less expressly than in a sports team where you do have that relationship with coaching staff, but any workplace involves firstly inherently power imbalance between employees and employers, but in a more practical sense, some form of hierarchy. Unless you're a sole trader, there is someone telling someone else what to do. The complexity and the rigidity of internal workplace hierarchy varies, but it's always there. And it is something when that power imbalance exists that can be exploited or can lead to the kind of inappropriate conduct that is being discussed, which is related to the question of organisational tolerance, which outside of sport would be more commonly referred to as a workplace culture that encouraged or 
more likely condoned bullying and harassment behaviour. That's one of the key differences, I think. It's never, except in a very strange and very high-risk workplace, it's never expressed in the same way that I think, Vicky, you were saying, that it can be just put that this is how you become a better sports person. But it can arise nonetheless, if not dealt with. What it looks like varies, again, workplace to workplace. At a very high level, you could see it in a blue-collar workforce with a history of bastardisation of apprentices, for example, by older tradesperson that leads to cyclical expressions of violence throughout that workplace. On the other side of the spectrum, in a white-collar professional working environment, it can be harder to pinpoint, but we have ongoing patterns of behaviour like white anting, mobbing, where a group of workers gang up on another an interesting expression of workplace harassment that can go in a range of different directions. That can be from lower ranking staff upwards to their manager or amongst peers or exclusionary tactics, that kind of thing. If that's how everyone's always behaved and it's not expressly dealt with through proper training processes, it can facilitate the kind of ongoing conduct. And the final thing that Vicky mentioned that I thought was interesting was the idea of perceived instrumental effects, I think was the phrase. Again, it's different. No one is expressly saying we are bullying and harassing you to make you a better worker, but there are certain managerial tasks that need to be carried out in any workplace that are related to this. It's either motivating people to achieve at a high level in the first place or the more complex task of correcting perceived poor performance, which is similar to what you were describing. Both of them are difficult managerial tasks, and again, it's not as explicit, but some people genuinely think that things like yelling, calling people out in public, micromanaging, excessive criticism is an appropriate way to manage people, partially through a lack of training, a lack of managerial sophistication, but it materialises in the same kind of behaviour that I think you were talking about, Vicky. I think it's probably fair to say that there's always a line between pushing an employee or a sports person to perform at their best, and I think that's one of the things that Vicky mentioned. I think probably the line perhaps is easier to see in a non-sporting workplace than it is in a sporting workplace. Would you agree with that? Uh, No. Uh, No, I wouldn't, largely because the overwhelming majority of workplace harassment claims that end up in legal action are centred around performance management, either those two aspects that I was talking about. To some extent, you're right, the kind of outlier behaviour could be spotted. It isn't appropriate to just expressly say I'm yelling at you to make you a better employee but it's still very very grey and a lot of the difficulty is is because many people are totally oblivious to the effect they're having on others or are correspondingly very confronted by criticisms of their work performance and in the workplace context unlike the sporting field it's often non-accidental violence but it's nevertheless not intentional at all you have this real difficulty where people are become very confronted and have a very strong reaction to being called a bully. The complexity of it is really illustrated by the difficulty in identifying what is and isn't reasonable management action. Vicky, have you personally experienced any of the sorts of harassment, bullying, or uh, I think the way you phrased it was the um, non-accidental violence in sport in your career? Well, I have, and I don't think I'm an unusual case. As we've already discussed, it is very much a part of, particularly at the elite level, the culture of sport. And so 
what we see is the various forms of, in particular, psychological abuse that occurs uh, actually is embedded into the very basic or routine behaviour in sports, so training and, and developing of an athlete. And so, for example, you might see coaches raising their voice, shouting at athletes to drive just that little bit of extra effort. Uh, you might see in a team context emotionally manipulative behaviour whereby the coach or perhaps high-status athletes, those that have more power over others, can actually use psychological abuse to actually control an environment and create an atmosphere of, of fear to be able to keep people compliant to the norms or the expectations. So, yes, unfortunately, it is very much sort of par for the course of elite training and competition. Lucy, do you think the people who are the victims of that type of behaviour have the same opportunities to address the behaviour in sport as they do outside of sport? Is there any real difference between the opportunities to get justice for those people who are unfortunately the victims of that type of behaviour? In theory, not really. In practice, it's going to depend on the nature of the athletes' engagement. Some are employees, some are federal system employees, some aren't. The difficulty is the legal methods for dealing with bullying and harassment in any kind of workplace, none of them are entirely satisfactory for any worker. I do think it would be more difficult for a sports person, um, in part because of the prevalence of this kind of behaviour within the internal culture, not at the higher end of the conduct that's being described, but some of that training aspect is very, very difficult. Certainly they wouldn't have the, most sports people I should say, wouldn't have the easy remedy of seeking stop bullying orders in the Fair Work Commission, but that hasn't proved to be a tremendously successful outcome for employees who do have access to it. Similarly, the the contractual remedies that are available for employees are complicated, difficult and depend on particular policies and employment terms, but at least there is something there for people in what we might call a standard workplace. Well, ironically, in, in sport, it's the people who are young, inexperienced, who are probably still in the amateur ranks that are probably the most vulnerable and no doubt have the least protection. In sport, that would be the case, wouldn't it, Vicky? Yes, that's what we have found. And I was very interested to follow a case of a young British cyclist, actually, Jess Varnish, who was actually seeking to be able to bring her claims against her experiences in training in British cycling, but was unable to because the employment tribunal actually deemed her not to be a worker or an employee, but rather it was the case under her athlete agreement that she was an athlete training under an athlete agreement. So it meant that she didn't actually have an opportunity to bring these claims against British cycling, which although, Lucy, as you were discussing, actually sometimes doesn't necessarily create an acceptable outcome either or it's not that effective, at least what it can do is, is actually provide clarity around what is or is not expected of behaviour in a sporting context and hopefully then can help trickle down into more informal norms and shifting the, shifting the culture of the sport as well. It's quite a good point and it translates into the employment context. Even the fact of someone making a claim wherever it's made and whatever the outcome ends up being is often a warning sign to an organisation, whether it's a sporting organisation or an employer, that something is wrong internally, something is wrong culturally and targeted training 
maybe needed to address the problem either as a matter of principle or more practically to avoid future liability. So having those options there, even if they are difficult and often unsatisfactory, is better than nothing. And with that in mind, Vicky, what are the sporting institutions doing to move away from those bad old days, do you think? Well, I think that there is an understanding that this needs a, a whole-of-system approach that we can't just address, for example, governance or compliance without addressing the cultural educational aspects to this problem as well. But that is not easy to do. I mean, if we're talking about shifting cultural norms, it means that we're shifting ways of actually developing and training athletes right the way up into the elite level. So that's going to require a development of new skills on behalf of both athletes and coaches as well. And they're also developing better oversight as well. So whether that be an independent body external to each individual national sports federation as well, I believe is on the cards too which is something that I think that would be extremely effective to ensure that we don't have those that are necessarily the perpetrators or the instigators of the abuse being responsible for compliance within the actual sport. The COVID lockdown has caused a complete disruption to virtually all of the sport in Australia. But we see that the NRL has just come back online in some form on TV and we're about to see the AFL come online in the next week or so. I think it might be this week. And players as I said, are going to be under an enormous amount of pressure to abide by some pretty strict rules to contain the spread of of the virus and and isolate. Uh, But at the same time, those people who are running the games are no doubt keen on keeping a, a close eye on the financial position, which is probably driving the need to get the product back on the TV screens. But there are two issues that I see arising. One is that we know that football players in particular have been known to struggle from time to time in complying with these types of rules. How do you think that the players are going to be able to maintain the sort of strict social isolation that's going to be required to keep these competitions running? They seem to, haven't people already comprehensively failed before they've come back? Like it wasn't a strong start. No, no, it wasn't a strong start. And, and before they even started, I think that there were some breaches of the guidelines. But now that they're playing contact sport, not just training within their own group, but playing against other teams. It seems to be a high-risk strategy and there's going to have to be some fairly strict measures to keep it all under control. And as we know, they don't have a lot of form in that department. Yes, I I think the big picture issue here is where the health and safety of both athletes, but then I guess in, in, in this particular context, the safety of the broader community is being compromised in order to achieve the financial outputs of the organisation as a whole. So what we see is the structural impact of this winner-take-all could potentially play out here where you've got the managers and administrations of sport willing to take great risks in order to achieve the outcomes that they're looking for financially. So Lucy, this is something that you could deal with. The sporting bodies are going to have to deal with players refusing to vaccinate, which is something that they've been required to do as one of the conditions, as I understand it, of their returning to the competition. How are they going to deal with that and can they force the players to vaccinate? It's a very difficult question. Um, Part of it is to do with the difficulty of making anyone vaccinate as part of their job. The other part is the nature of the objection. Whether a player can be forced to or not is largely going to turn on their 
particular contract with whoever it is that engages them through whatever complicated club system that it is. But there are two types of objections that I understand have been raised. One is the vaccines cause autism or whatever the particular justification is, which is um, being touted perhaps optimistically as a religious objection by some players. That's one thing. That's a particular set of personal views. But others have resisted on the basis that they've previously had a bad reaction to the vaccine and it's a question of bodily autonomy, which given they make their living off their physicality is a bit harder, uh, I think, for, from as a proposition to force them to doing it. The religious objection is, of course, interesting and has been, I think, phrased as a religious objection rather than a political or scientific view because of the current controversy about how much sporting codes, like any employer, can control their players' private lives and private statements of belief, which is an issue that hasn't yet been resolved. Um, What seems to be happening is that that objection won't fly and those players will be forced to either have the vaccination or not play the real outcome. And that may lead to litigation along the Falau lines. The bodily autonomy objection, if people have medical reasons, seems to be, people seem to be pressing on um, and allowing those players to rely on herd immunity. But it's a it, it's a complicated question. It's not unique to sport. Um, well, it's new to sport. Other workers have been for some years now, required to have certain mandatory vaccinations, uh, nurses and health workers, for example, and there are workers within those communities who share these particular objections. Um, I see on the list of questions, Ian, you've asked, is there any validity in the anti-vaxxers objection? Probably not from a scientific point of view, but that's not really the point here. They may well be allowed to believe what they believe, which does take us to the Back to the more complicated aspect, part of the reason that this vaccination program is being pushed and part of the reason it's pushed in the health industry is as a part of a public awareness campaign, building support for vaccinations. These players, for better or worse, have public profiles, their decisions matter, and what's put forward by them or by their employer as to the legitimacy of vaccinations or otherwise does have an impact in the community. It's quite at the front of our minds at the moment because of the the pandemic. But prior to that, although we've had vaccinations for uh, influenza and so on for a long time, but Vicky, in your sporting career, were you ever required to vaccinate as part of your your training or your preparation for competitions? No, we weren't actually. So this is very much a new phenomenon um, in light of COVID-19. Well, that's the public, that's the public education aspect. Um, vaccinating someone for flu now doesn't have a direct impact on COVID-19 transmission rates, although very peripherally it could affect um, health resources. But in a year, hopefully, a vaccine will be developed and everyone will be asked to get it. And dealing with the current controversy about uh, vaccination now is a matter of particular public significance. So there is an aspect of that in the program. Okay. As you probably both know, my sporting obsession is cycling. And that's a sport that has a history involving both large sums of money and high levels of doping. With the European season pretty well wiped out, or they've talked about postponing it, but the likelihood is it's going to be cancelled, I think. There's going to be a pressure, isn't there, on people to chance their arm at performance-enhancing substances, whether they're 
young athletes on the cusp of greatness or old athletes on the cusp of retirement with one last opportunity, you think we're going to have a um, increase in the in the amount of performance enhancing drug positive tests, um, Vicky? And this all goes back to normal. Uh, well, I think it's very hard to make that judgment. Really, I think it does depend uh, in terms of the individuals stage in their career I think that that actually will be a major factor in how this is actually experienced by the individual athlete whether or not you're coming up the ranks or perhaps this is your last year before retirement but also uh, I think it depends on other factors in in your environment some things that we've already talked about whether or not doping is indeed normalized within the club or the team or the national team that you're that you're a part of and if that that's the case and there's obviously going to be systemic forces that are going to come into play again well that's probably all we've got time for today so vicky thank you very much for joining us and um telling us a bit about some of these ethical issues that arise in the sporting field and thank you lucy for joining us and giving us your experience in the non-sporting employment arena Oh, hello everyone, this is Frank Hicks and I'm here with members of the Greenway Chambers band called Brief Encounter. Leah Reed, Lucas Shipway, Hernan Pintas-Lopez and Imogen Thomas, welcome to you all. Hi, Hi Frank. Thanks. Now, can I ask with a simple question, um, how did the band form? We were trying to remember that. I think it was formed in two reasons. I think partly we came to learn that Law Rocks, which is a charity event, was being planned and we thought that was something that Greenway might get involved in. Uh, and before that, Ian Roberts, I think, had said to me that he was a bit of a keen muso and so I said, well, we should put a band together and get it organised. So, so Lucas, you're one of the original members? I suppose so. Ian and I and I think Leah and Hernan and Imogen joined not long after that. Okay. You mentioned the Law Rocks event. How many of those have you participated in, Hernan? We've done two and uh, I think we were quite keen to do a third, but external events uh, intervened. What could that possibly um, be? Uh, I think the, the, the topic that dominates everyone's uh, conversations at the moment, but it, it's, it was a great experience. Uh, I think we really enjoyed playing Law Rocks. There's nothing quite like the buzz of having a, a good crowd. It's quite enjoyable. Well, speaking of that, Imogen, have you performed in front of crowds before the Brief Encounter events? So I've done a little bit of jazz singing in my past, but I'd never sung rock before. So this was a whole new genre for me. Done a lot of choral stuff as well. No rock. Well, very good. And Leah, what about you? (laughs) I have sung with a band before and I've also sung at a few of my friends' weddings. So I went through that stage in late 20s where all of my friends were getting married and I was consistently asked to sing their first dance song or sing while they were walking down to the altar. And so, yeah, that's my experience, but mainly pop, not so much rock. I see. And now the name Brief Encounter, obviously it is a reference to what we do as barristers, but there was also an institution in London in the 90s that we became aware of following the name. Now, did that inform anyone's decision on the name at all? 
We had no idea. It's also based, I gather, on a film, a right. black and white film. Black and white film? Black and white film. What, deliberately in, black and white or just well, age, yes, ages exactly, old? Exactly, VHS. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not even beta. <laughs> That's right. Right, okay. And so look, you, you mentioned Imogen that you're into jazz and Leah, you're into pop. So how do you decide what songs you want to play? Chaos. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a democratic process or is there some sort of um, overstern barn fuhrer that directs what gets done? Yeah, yeah, it's a democratic process in the sense that Ian Roberts chooses the music. <laughs> right. right. As long as it's an 80s rock Australian anthem, then we've got full range to decide what to sing. I see, I see. Well, in that regard, is there anything off limits that has anyone got a power of veto? Uh, anything that's not an 80s Australian rock anthem. <laughs> and things with keyboards. Yes. But we're recruiting. I see. So yeah, we're in the market the... for a keyboard player. Mm. Yes. So this call is going out to all you budding barristers out there who might also be talented keyboardists. Well, when you say talented, how talented do they need to be? Reasonably talented. <laughs> reasonably talented. <laughs> that, that famous protean turn, reasonable. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they can't be better than us. <laughs> Right, I, I see. So, um, in terms, you've done two gigs, obviously, um, and the third one, not immediate, but at some point in the future. But, Hernan, what are you guys working on at the moment? Anything new for the repertoire? Oh, yeah, look, we are. We're working on a few things at the moment. We're doing some Nirvana, we're doing some other stuff. I'm just trying to think. We've got. Um, We've got three or four songs at the moment that are in the pipeline, but it's pretty early days for us, so we're just putting them together at the moment. But we had our first rehearsal in a while about a couple of weeks ago, and it was great to get back in harness and run through some songs and, yeah, had a really good time, basically. We had a lot of fun. Where do you rehearse? Do you rehearse here in Chambers or do you have a warehouse somewhere? Or No, no, we rehearse at Crow's Nest. There's a place called um, Big, Big Music. Music. But we've also now found a new place in Rose Bay, which we're trying out this week. Oh, so, very good. Yeah. What are, are these just rooms with egg cartons lining the walls, like back in the old sharehouse days? No, no, they no. They're proper sound studios. Yeah, they're proper sound studios. Well, they're, they're primarily, you know, rooms for musical practice or musical teaching, but they're very well set up. They've got all the gear there, and we just walk in and plug in our stuff. So have you thought about recording whilst you're at these places? Do they have those sort of facilities? They do have those facilities, mm-hmm. and we've made a few rough recordings on mobile phones and so on, but you could probably do a much better quality job there if you wanted to. They've got good equipment. And they've got people there that you can engage as producers to turn up the bass and all that kind of stuff as is necessary. That's right. We haven't done that yet. And, and to give props to Ian, we're now a few too many to, to uh, fit in his basement, but he had a basement which we would rehearse into before we, as I say, got to be too large. Uh, so that's part of the reason why Ian got to choose the songs because he provided the facilities. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, I've certainly attended a number of the gigs and they've been very entertaining, including one or two of the unplugged sessions you've had here on Friday nights in Chambers. And uh, if the Law Rocks events don't resume fairly quickly, then hopefully we can have a few more of those and entertain or interrogate our solicitors with that sort of music. And any requests that you, that people would like the Greenway Band to uh, learn and play uh, would be welcome as much as any applications by reasonably talented keyboardists. Thank you very much, Imogen, Hernan, Lucas and Leah. And to use an old phrase, keep on rocking. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Law Talking by Greenway Chambers. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.